Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation, the podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my good friend Sebastian Eduardo Di Giovanni to talk about Italian politics. Sebastian and I usually talk about Paolo Sorrentino's cinema and the, the social and artistic view of Italian affairs and therefore of that aspect of European civilization that is tied up above all, of course, with the Catholic Church on the one hand and on the other hand, the visual arts, the imitative arts the glory of Italy since the days of Giotto all the way to the 20th cinematic century. Today we will be looking at this same European-Italian-Western question from the other side, from the political point of view, which is of course much more urgent and much more of importance in Europe than in America, but nevertheless binds us together somehow. Italy is celebrated, Italy is famous, Italy has some kind of charm and attraction that is not easily explained in political terms, but which must have a political form, of course, in people's day-to-day lives, in alliances, even in the opinion nations form of each other. So since now there have been elections in Italy and a rare turn of the country to the political right after a couple of decades of the center-right of Berlusconi and then all sorts of turmoil, all sorts of missteps or wayward steps that is a nation that seemed for quite a bit of time undecided, possibly the nation has decided which course to take again and what it might mean for Italy to be a right-wing nation or to have a right-wing government. This is, uh, of course, of uh, great interest because there have been many populist movements, many movements that claim sovereignty on behalf of the people and therefore are right-wing in the last 10 years or so. And yet not many of them have succeeded or not in their first steps, in their their first victories have been usually followed by confusion and by defeats, by schisms in coalitions and by all sorts of troubles in terms of running a state, running a modern state, which is somehow at odds with the right-wing politics of the nation, of the people, of representing an identity and the will. And now it is the Italy's turn to move in this populist nationalist direction to the right, to try to face off against the EU and to try to save a nation that is in trouble. This somehow is the promise of the right. It will stand up for the nation and therefore, especially in times of trouble, it promises to save the nation. This is more or less the way in which a nation defines itself. At postmodern conservative, we are big believers in the fact that political communities define themselves through their leaders, through the way they identify a crisis and approach it, and that politics in a certain way reveals to people what they think of themselves, what they believe is just, what they believe is urgent, and what they believe is important, and how to arrange the urgent and the important that affairs may continue to prosper. And in this case, we'll try to look at the recent events, the Italian elections, the new government, the personalities involved, and the scandals that must come, political scandals, economic scandals, once we reveal that there is trouble and that uh, people have pretended for a long time that the trouble isn't real. So once these things happen, a nation in a way reveals its character to itself and to the world. At that point, the political community reveals itself as what it is in relationship to its past, of course, but also to its uh, urgent challenges. This will be our subject today, and we will try to talk through the major issues. First of all, the new prime minister, Giorgia Meloni, then we will talk about the economic troubles, then we'll talk about the citizenship question in relation to immigration, and finally, we might have a chance to talk about foreign affairs as well. Now, this being the program, please, Sebastian, introduce yourself to our audience. And uh, of course, let me first of all, thank you for joining me for this conversation, for sharing your long and amusing experience of foreign and political affairs in Italy. This will not be a dreary or a gloomy conversation. It is always a joy to talk these things over with you, to laugh to some extent at what are serious things. And as I said, please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us how did you feel about the election results? And how do you feel about events now in relation to Giorgia Meloni? Hi, Titus. Thank you for having me. Thank you to your audience for listening. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to our American friends. Well, uh, how do I feel? 
It's interesting. It's in, extremely interesting because Italy hasn't had a conservative government in a long time. People wrongly think, I think, that Berlusconi was right-wing and conservative. Yes and no. He, he wasn't really, as we very well know, especially in his personal attitudes and beliefs. But what is he super interesting at the moment, no matter what do you think, on what side you are or you lean to, left or right, what is interesting is we have the first unambiguously elected government by the people and for the people. She won by a landslide. This is what the people want. This hasn't happened in decades. It was always like, yeah, the right had 51% or the left had 50 Actually, the left usually loses, but for some reason in Italy always governs. But a clearer message could not be given by the Italian people to the institutions. We want a stable right government. And this is an absolute novelty. Now, obviously, being not really right wing, but more conservative, I'm interested, at, to say the least, not sure if I'm happy yet, because I want to judge them on what they do. It all obviously pleases me, because this is democracy. That's what the people want. They have a shot at it now. We should stop complaining and fascism is back and all of that nonsense. No, this is democracy, whether you like it or not. Let's give them five years. And they have a good chance of ruling for five years. You know, having a woman, that's exciting as well. Again, the whole spiel, the whole time by certain parts of the aisle, it, oh, there's never any... Women are not giving enough importance in government and all of that, which is true. Now that the prime minister is a woman, they're still complaining on, on in the opposition. So hold on, what, what happened to your feminism? It's gone. So it's interesting to see also the direction by the opposition. And having Roger Scruton quoted in the first address to parliament by the first female prime minister was quite something. So I'm very much looking forward to judge them by what they do. They've been in charge not even a week. Let's see what's happening. Let's see what happens. Let's not have any prejudice either way. And I think they will work really well. Now, I'm not a biggest fan of her entourage, let's say. I think she's a very honest woman, direct, uh, very sincere. And I personally like her. Her entourage is questionable and her allies, Silvia Berlusconi and Matteo Salvini, are dubious to say the least. Here's the beauty. So Salvini's party combined with Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party, their votes combined don't, don't even come close to what Giorgio Meloni got alone. So there's not much they can do or interfere. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm quite optimistic. I think their first council was two days ago. They had to do some urgent stuff in regards to the economy, you know, the gas prices and energy bills and all of that. So it's not enough yet to judge them. There's a very controversial bill, for example, against the excuse used was an illegal wraith party. There was a health hazard and it was illegal. They occupied, you know, this establishment and they did this big wraith party. Now, for the first time to memory, it was a very civil evacuation. Usually the police came in, they just manhandled them and they were just evacuated in a very sometimes, unfortunately, violent way. What we are gleaning from the news is it was actually very civil. Those parting listen to the police. The police didn't use any force of violence. They come to an agreement. And according to La Repubblica even, so I'm a fan of this government, even they had to admit it was very civil and the brave party people even cleaned the building they occupied. So they made a bill though to do this, which doesn't allow more than X number of people to gather in venues. Of course, everyone is crying. This is against the constitution and personal liberties. Obviously, it's more nuanced than that. The bill doesn't exactly say what the left says it says. But here was my reflection. Hold on a minute. I'm all in favor for the constitution and you should not stop people from a gathering, etc. But where were you where this very right was just ignored for the COVID reasons? You know, we were locked at homes and apparently even having a coffee on your own with no one around you were extremely dangerous. Or, you know, or people that were chased with drones in lonely beaches because they were having a cigarette and the cops came down and raided you because it was health, safety, very dangerous. Okay, but where were you? When all of this happened, why is all of a sudden now that the right wing is in power now, all of a sudden you're all, again, constitutionalist and for freedom? Yes, indeed. And uh, there is something amusing and disturbing at the same time in this sudden transformation of people who were for naked despotism in the name of a state of emergency, in the name of health. And now they're suddenly discovering civil rights again. It's predictable, of course, in partisan politics, but it's especially unpleasant in this situation because the restrictions 
values, personal life, to jobs, to fundamental things in our lives, like uh, visiting people in the hospital, visiting your family, or burying your dead, fundamental human things, sacred things. All of that was thrown out in the name of despotism. Oh. Now, however, parties are to have run society again, and people can go celebrate. It's, as I said, both amusing and disturbing, and one wants to know what will the Meloni government do about these things? Will it revoke the COVID restrictions on employment and so on and so forth? As you say, we have to... Yesterday. Yeah, exactly. I I just heard it in the news as well that the the sorts of things that had prevented the doctors who were not vaccinated, etc. from working have been removed. So that would seem to be both standing up for her principles, keeping a campaign promise and returning Italy to something like a decent, normal way of life where people can work for a living go about their lives without too much state interference. So we'll see what happens with this decree. And of course, what will happen to that great pastime of Italians, the protest, the gatherings for purposes of political protest. As you say, Meloni is new to government. She has just formed a coalition government in the Italian system. Inevitably, it is a coalition. And often enough, these coalitions collapse. But this one has much better chances to survive than uh, others have in the past because the Fratelli dell'Italia, the Brothers of Italy part, the Meloni leads has won a remarkable first place and is dominates its coalition just as the coalition dominates both houses of the legislature with very large majorities, 60% uh, at least. So as you say, the, the people of Italy do want to change. And they have decided which form that change should take. And now they might indeed get it. Remains to be seen in what ways uh, this change will materialize. How will it arrive, given all the troubles that governments must face? But at least this much is clear about the parties and the composition of the government. Perhaps another advantage is that Giorgia Meloni and her brothers of Italy were almost single-handedly the opposition to COVID despotism during the last two years when every other party joined what we might call a national unity coalition under Mario Draghi, Giorgia Meloni wisely chose to stay in opposition. That was a rare marriage of interest and principle. She was against the despotism. She was against especially applying state powers to ruin the lives of ordinary people of the working classes. And of course, it benefited her immensely since it made her the champion of the people. Since this opportunity of going into opposition was available to everybody else, it's shocking that only Giorgia Meloni took it and a sign of her courage. And as you say, of her honesty, when we hear Giorgia Meloni speak, it only takes a minute or two for her to move from how politicians talk to how she talks. In any allocution, you can see her passions rising to the surface. And so she strikes us not merely as sincere, but as in a way, uh, unable to all the tricks that politicians learn to pull with equivocations and illusions and failures to commit or to speak clearly as to what they want or what they will do. And somehow this, this event, she was alone in opposition, and this other event, that she has won the elections by a large margin, speaks both well of her and in a strange way, ill or at least portentously of her chances as a government. She may have become the champion of the people and she may well intend to champion that cause, but the allies are few. And it is, of course, one thing to win the legislature, which she has done beautifully, splendidly. And it is quite another thing to govern a state, as populist movement after populist movement has discovered in South America, North America, and Europe. Running the modern state is a very difficult problem. And not merely because these are bureaucrats whom no one appoints or fires, but because these bureaucrats have commitments of their own, and they are involved in all sorts of international agreements and organizations, and they are habituated to all sorts of beliefs, all sorts of ways of thinking that are inimical, in fact, and often in principle as well, to popular government, to political representation, to everything we call democracy and freedom. Now, uh, Meloni has to become the champion of the people within government. And there is an obvious contradiction between running the state and making use of its authority and defending the people, as she did in opposition or tried to do from the worst excesses of that use of state authority. And so with this, we can turn to the challenges she is about to face, the one, the economy, and the other, Italian citizenship and immigration. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. First of all, I know, just to be fair, Meloni, it is true, she did do opposition during the Draghi government, but it has to be said, it was a very convenient one. It was a zero-sum game for her. Like, someone had to be at the opposition because it would have been extremely embarrassing to have no opposition parliament. It would have been a first. So what she did was incredibly savvy and smart, from her point of view, at least. Let's do an opposition that cost her zero, and she had all to gain. But when it came to the real stuff, she never really opposed Draghi. And you can see this very clearly. Clearly, very intelligently, she has put key members of a government that are very close to Draghi because she needs to play a very intelligent game where she reassures, for example, the Americans, NATO and the European market and the European Union by putting prestigious people very close to Draghi. And she has to please the two factions of a government, the coalition, so Forza Italia and Lega. So what has she done, for example, which I think is very intelligent? Let's take the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate is a very prestigious role, counts for very little. So she put her vice president of her party, Ignazio Larussa, in that position. Now, obviously, everyone was crying, ah, oh, former fascist is the second most important person in the state. Well, yes, but he has no power. So that side is happy. Who is in, who's the uh, president of the parliament? Fontana from Lega Nord. Yes, he said some very controversial thing according to the opposition about gay marriage and the traditional family and immigrants and all of that. But he's powerless there. So that's pretty good. Now, look who she has put in place in the economics department. People close to the former administration. And this is because, yes, she has won by a landslide, but she also needs to make sure she can last. Now, I think she might be extremely forward-looking. She knows, at least for the time being, she needs to reassure the markets. And once she's extremely strong politically by winning also the European elections and the local ones, then she might be even more aggressive and do perhaps what she really wants to do, which is a federation of Europe, for example. There's a big myth that the right, the conservative, and especially this coalition is against the Eurozone, the European Union. No, they love Europe so much, they want it to work. Anyone who loves Europe hates the European Union. Let's do a federation, which is, by the way, what was envisaged by the fathers of Europe, like the Gasperi or Truman and all those folks. This is a banking union. It's not democratic at all. It's a very intelligently designed, subtly fascist government, the one of the European Union, because the parliament can't do laws. That's all the American audience need to know. We have a parliament in Europe of great bureaucrats that we barely know. They cannot make a single law. They can propose laws to the commission, which is nominated by the government. Anyway, someone very smart a very long time ago designed a system where it looks like democracy, it smells like democracy, it quacks like democracy, but it is not democracy. So that's all this government wants to do. But she needs to be stronger. So what she's doing is she's re reassuring her allies nationally and internationally. And once she's strong enough, I think she'll go for the big guns. Let's question not Europe again, just the European Union. Yeah, there's something that's brewing in terms of opposition to the EU. The, since 2008, the Union has been more and more disunited, and this has only made the institutions of the EU more unreasonable. They don't take well to any kind of criticism or even hesitations often enough. And of course, Brexit has happened since, which has in certain ways shaken the Union, but in other ways empowered these institutions, since there is less internal opposition. So in the medium term, we'll say the end of a first Meloni government, there must come some kind of reckoning in regards to European affairs, since Italy is of great importance to the European Union. It is a founding member. There is no European Union without it. It is the third nation in Europe by population, third or fourth by economy. There is no EU without it. And now it is a right-wing government. And so there must come some kind of reckoning. But as you say, the urgent thing is the economy, reassuring the markets, figuring out the political economic game at an international level. Because otherwise, as we see in Britain, Liz Truss self-destructed inside of seven weeks. That's pretty quick for a government. And of course, Listra said none of the legitimacy that the big election gets you. And uh, there's a major difference. But since there was struggle in the British economy, the government turned out to have absolutely no authority at all and has since been replaced. Now, uh, Meloni will not be facing anything quite so daunting, but there will be uh, terrible economic challenges. Uh, Italy, like the rest of Europe, has seen terrible inflation this year, which hasn't happened in decades. The EU essentially is in a 
this session. We just find technical ways or not even technical ways, sometimes merely lawyerly ways to avoid using the word. And perhaps people, ordinary people, don't want to face it because it would be a threat to their middle class way of life. And instead of defending that way of life, they sometimes prefer to not notice the dangers it faces. But mm-hmm. even beyond inflation, uh, energy prices have been terrible since this war uh, Russia started in Ukraine. And to some extent, the EU and especially America have started in turn against Russia in a somewhat unstable combination of enmities and alliances at the global level. The result in Europe has been no political union on the issue, but on the other hand, a quite serious economic trouble that comes from these terrible energy prices, which of course are even worse a catastrophe perhaps for industry than they are for ordinary people in their private capacity. So these are massive problems. Sebastian, do you have any sense of what it is that the coalition government under Meloni is trying to do about energy, about inflation, about the economics of Italy, that problems, all of these terrible, urgent things that, as you rightly put it, must take precedence over certain political changes. Meloni said very wisely, I think, in her maiden speech to parliament, that Italy must change its constitution to become a presidential republic. That fits Italian character. That is the only way to run a proper executive in Italy. And the counterexample of a republic that is parliamentary and malfunctioning has been only too obvious in our generation at the least. But such a constitutional change must wait for years. What cannot wait, of course, is the economic question. What are your thoughts on the economic question? My first comment when she won, my first thought, not comment, was I'm actually a bit sad she won right now because not even Winston Churchill, I think, would be able to handle what is about to come. So in a way, we were speculating with some colleagues, geopolitical analysts, on why the left lost almost so... I mean, the whole campaign was insanely stupid. And mind you, Enrico Letta, he's not a stupid man. He's a very smart guy. And so that it's not so much stupidity could not possibly have happened unless, and that was my theory, they actually passed me the term. They almost wanted to lose because they knew no one would be able to handle what is about to come certainly not that side of the aisle. And so, you know, why should we rule this mess? Let's stay at the opposition. We take our 15K a month anyway. We look good as the opposition and we'll make everything we can to make this government, this right-wing government fail so dramatically. The right will never rule again for 20 years because, oh, you see what happened when the first female right-wing prime minister happens to be in charge? Now, obviously, this is none of Giorgio Meloni's fault. It's the circumstances, the war. Mario Draghi left for two years you know, for almost two years, we were said, Mario Draghi, the best, the magnificent, he, he was a god. He left us in such a terrible state. All his proposed prestige in the European institution came to nothing. Not even the, the price cap on gas that he proposed, they, they laughed at him. First of all, where's this European Union unity? If the migrant issue was not solved by them. The pandemic was all, every country was on their own, basically. And now the economy, I mean, the European Union can't agree on anything. But anyway, that aside, what will she do? Good question. The first thing we're doing in Italy that, that they will do, she will divide, separate the cost of gas from the cost of electricity. Because for complicated reason, it was always together because it was convenient when there was a lot of electricity and a lot of gas for cheap. And the second move they'll do, which is absolutely the right thing to do, although not enough, they will tax the extra income of the energy companies, which are state-owned. So any, our biggest energy company, is partially state-owned. What's the point of having a state-owned energy company that are making up to 900% more money than they used to do two years ago if they can't be of any help to the people that basically own it because any state company is owned by us. So that's what they'll charge them. That's not going to be enough, but it will help. Now, what I think will happen is something that would be a smart move on the part of Putin, and Putin is an extremely smart guy. He will make absolutely sure that for mysterious reasons, there's going to be plenty of gas and plenty of energy because it, it is in his interest that this government works well. Because Giorgia Meloni, yes, she's NATO friendly and she's pledging allegiance, but in the end, she's a reasonable person and she knows this war can't be won. Unless we use nukes, which I think we assume everyone wants to avoid, there's no way of defeating a giant like Russia. So let's be smart here and let's turn to our original role as Italy. Italy used to be the mediator per excellence, balancing different interests and saying, listen, we can't send weapons, for example, anymore because our constitution forbids it. So my hands are tied. 
How about though we use Italy as a territory to mediate uh, American Russia? Because this is a war. This is an American war, I think, a NATO war, if not American, fought in Europe until the last Ukrainian. So let's use our soft power and diplomacy to solve this issue. And this role has been taken up by Erdogan, a dictator. How is it that he's a good dictator and his gas is good, while Putin is a bad dictator? I've never understood this double standard. But Europe is in, and the West in general is in such a state of denial and hypocrisy of their political class that we're just willing to get gas from Al Algerian and Moroccan and Turkey dictator because they're good dictators because right now they're support up. So the Meloni government will have to do smartly what Erdogan is trying to do with some success, being a mediator and take charge again of the Mediterranean Sea. The Greeks can't do it. The Spanish are not interested. It was always Italy. Hence why our interests so often collided with Great Britain, because we were a big threat to, well, that's on a whole podcast on its own. But Italy is the natural mediator and, and ruler of the Mediterranean area. When we had Giulio Andreotti or Bettino Craxi in the First Republic, we call it, we were central to the politics of the Mediterranean basin. Now we count nothing. So I think this was, and, and you can already see it in the first decrees, there's no more migrants allowed. Anyone who legally wants to come in, they're welcome. This is another big myth. This government is against migration. No, they're against illegal migration. Very different concept. If you're coming from an actual war, of course, our doors are wide open. But right now, it was Terra Nullius here. Anyone could come. And this needs to be changed, you know? Look, for example, speaking about double standards, uh, Sanna Marin, the prime minister of Finland, she just said that her country was going to build, will build a wall to keep the Russians out. And she was hailed as a what a heroine. Hold on. So let me get this straight. It's okay to build a wall to keep the Russians out. Now, Russians who want to flee to Finland are obviously against Putin. So it's just nonsensical on its own. But that's fine. She's a hero. But when Donald Trump wanted to build a wall to keep illegal migrants out, that was banned. I don't understand. I mean, I do understand it, of course. But this is double standard trap we're in right now. So Giorgio Meloni will do what she can to bring common sense and might I add female common sense, a mother's common sense. She comes from Garbatella in Rome. It's a very simple, true Roman place. And she brings that common sense from her people to the parliament. Her speech was just so humane. Like it was a human being with all her faults. And she wasn't observing really protocol. And everyone was like, oh, you can't address with the you, with the personal you form that we have. And she was speaking in Roman dialect. But it was actually good to see that there was an actual human being with all her faults and uh, picadillos and, and idiosyncrasies, name it. But it was a mother. It was a woman. And she will bring a household common sense, I would call it, back to these institutions. Stuffy and with Mario Draghi was just, he was a banker, so he wasn't used to democracy. And the first months were terrible. Because yeah, it's an important distinction to make. Mario Draghi was indeed the governor of the European Central Bank during the 2008 crisis and later. It's not possible to find a better contrast for oh. Giorgia Meloni, just like oh, it is not possible to find a better contrast for government in Italy. You can be for the European Central Bank or you can be for Italy, but the attempts to be for both over the last dozen years or so have all failed. And so now it seems like the country made a choice. And indeed, Giorgia Meloni will have to somehow remind people of what it means to have come from a modest working class life, what it means to have become middle class, what it means to try to raise children in Italy. No easy thing to look at the demographics. This is the basis, the moral basis, it seems to me, on which she could rally the people against a somewhat paralyzed state apparatus and an elite that is utterly beholden to the European Union, and uh, that no longer works for uh, whatever uh, reason, All, sometimes for good reasons. People thought that the uh, post-Maastricht 1992 European Union would be an economic success. It would be a success in terms of fostering a new generation of European citizens rather than national citizens. It would be a success in terms of a political rapprochement that could benefit this continent of 500 million people. But these things have not happened. The European Union economy since 2008 have been stagnant at best. The new generation often votes right, not necessarily left, as we see in Poland, as we see in Hungary, of course, now in Italy, as we have seen to some extent in England, which has had Brexit too, and elsewhere, from Sweden to occasionally it is the Netherlands, the right wing perks its head up. 
politics has not gone the direction of the EU, but we do not know what it might mean to move to the right. It would require uh, to somehow help the working and middle classes assert themselves over against these elites. Economically, indeed, the urgent question is, can people get through the winter? Can people find jobs? And can they afford to go on with their way of life in these times of inflation? And the urgent question of energy does require, as Georgia Meloni said in her speech to parliament, diversifying the resources of gas. It is not in European interest to not buy from Russia, and it is not in European interest to buy only from Russia. As she said, it is in the interest of all European nations to buy from as many sources as possible and to get therefore a more reliable and supply and a more advantageous supply for energy resources. Hopefully, she can bring that commonsensical and tough-minded at the same time attitude, a realistic attitude, an attitude without prejudices or idealism, an attitude that you could call, as you suggest, the idea of a woman, of a mother trying to take care of her kids, of a woman who sees people suffering and would like to at least make sure that the state isn't making things worse for the Italian people, to make sure that at least the institutions of the EU don't make things worse for the nations of the EU, which has happened tremendously this year. And yet, of course, the situation is quite bad. To some extent, it's a matter of how will the debt be a service. To the extent, it's a matter of how will the recession be dealt with. What's going to happen is something that was envisioned by a great Italian called Enrico Mattei. Enrico Mattei, who disappeared in very dubious circumstances, but let's not get into that. He had a dream of Italy becoming energetically independent, and he was achieving that. He was one of the most dynamic, incredible, and, and savvy businessmen of the time, and he died in a tragic plane accident. And he was getting Italian energetically independent from what we call the Seven Sisters, so the big oil corporations. And his plan to do that was was by doing very good deals that would benefit both parties in the third world, so Africa and the other state of the Mediterranean basin. And that's what we should do again. Also, we have our own incredibly strong and big gas reservoirs in our own Mediterranean Sea, but a certain politics until now and pressure by certain world powers, energy powers, would not allow us to use our own gas. So what I think will start to happen is we'll go back to the original plan of making Italy as independent as possible energetic-wise by drilling in our own Mediterranean Sea. And I mean, Italy could become, which was the worry back then in the 60s and 70s, Italy could become one of the strongest world powers, certainly energetically. So I think if we give this government enough time five years at least, this is something else that might be happening. Because right now, the Biden administration, although finally it's saying something about it, but it used to sell us their gas at extremely high prices, which wasn't fair. I mean, even a French minister last week said, we can't make it so that America profits economically from the situation of war by selling us their gas at incredibly high prices. So if our American friends in government don't realize that if they push it too far, they've got, they're actually going to achieve the opposite. Europe will go on its own and become finally independent because we still are not really sovereign. After World War II, we're still dependent from America and we want to be allies, no? not subjects. Now, this is not the way you treat an ally. You want us to help you and NATO defeat, you know, what is an invasion on the part of Russia? Let's do it, but let's not. Not at the cost of our life, you know, energy needs. And Putin knows this, so he's playing it extremely smart. You'll see he'll make his gas extremely cheap very soon. By some miracle, there's going to be more grain than before. And this will be especially true if the midterm elections don't change the current status quo in the American politics because that's the only true election that really counts. This is when we'll see change. Now, I don't need to comment on the American elections, but God, let's hope someone with some common sense gets there again because this is not doable anymore. And everyone is advising things to go differently because Putin will. P- Putin is an old dog of the old guard of the 70s KGB. That's why he went so well along with Merkel. You know, Merkel lived in the part of Germany that was under the Soviet Union's influence. And they went along incredibly well, maybe not personally, as individuals, very different ideas, but they understood each other's Weltanschauung because they came from that world. And I think it's not a coincidence that this war broke out the minute Merkel was gone, literally a week after that or something. Because, you know, Olaf Scholz is like, he's the Biden of Germany. So when we used to have trouble in Europe, let's say the papacy, you know, there was different contestants or big things like that. Usually an emperor would come down and say, okay, that's enough, guys. This is the true pope. This is the prince. And he sorted it out. Right now, there's no more emperorish figure that could come down 
into Europe and say, okay, this is enough. Let's put order into chaos. While that side of the world has Putin. Putin is extremely intelligent, savvy. Again, old dog from KGB. And uh, he's playing this one beautifully. Unfortunately, we in Europe were caught in this myth that it's us against Russia and the whole world is with us. And with Ukraine, it's actually not so. The only vote that counts is in the United Nations Council. And that's when you see who is with whom. The BRICS, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, most of countries, the most populous and richest country, if they're not signing with Putin, at least they're staying silent during the votes. They don't vote. Us, Europe, NATO, and United States, we think ourselves of the center of the world, but we're not anymore. America is not, unfortunately. If they don't get their act together, they will lose this last power they have very badly for a multipolar world, which personally I, I, I would be in favor of. But, you know, we don't want a world ruled by Putin or Chinese, God forbid. So we need America to get their acts back together and help us because we can't do it on, on our own. We have no army. And, and yes, we have NATO, but it's not ours. NATO is a post-World War II organization and it can't be the police of Europe. The whole energy problem could be solved by just simple common sense, and which is a common sense that the Ukrainians, Ukrainians share because the unsaid untold truth is, I don't know how many millions they get per day from the Russians to have the gas, you know, the energy come from their own pipelines. You know, Russia has to pay the Ukrainians for the permission. It's millions and millions of dollars. And how is that possible? Or why would Russia sabotage their own North Stream 2 gas conduct? It doesn't make any sense. Now, no one wants nuclear war. No one wants, I think, no one wants World War Three. But unless we get people back at a table, talk, and name that this has to be Biden and Putin, Giorgio Meloni, Olaf Scholz, Macron, they count as nothing. Xi Jinping maybe can say something, but that's it. The big of the world have to come together and just talk. Yeah, we're in a terrible mess. It's the economy depends on the energy. The energy now depends on the UN, on this foreign affairs crisis. And that ultimately means that the Americans and the Russians have to agree, as they have in various ways, in various regimes before, not to have a massive war in Europe. The war has to be contained and people have got to realize what it is that they stand to win and what it is that they stand to lose and make whatever adjustments are reasonable for the major parties. But you are, of course, right. This is not exactly a European problem. It's a problem that's happening in Europe and the consequences are paid by Europeans. But it is an American war on the one side and Russian on the other. Ukraine without the US would not have stood a chance. With the US, it stands a chance. But how is this going to be negotiated, brought to some kind of workable agreement rather than grinding, grinding, grinding for another year or more? That takes diplomacy, that takes kind of leadership that can bring both intelligence about politics and respect for affairs and for the various players involved to the negotiating table. And that we do not have at this point. It is, of course, a very bad uh, situation to be in that America has a zombie president. Who knows what will happen? This is a new development. Zombie presidents are an innovation, but not a good one. It's a gerontocracy that should scare us, especially now when, as you say, it has become obviously a multipolar world. The richest, most important countries, India and China, after America, have not seen fit to join Americans in their war on Russia. American, The American people are against such a war. And so even admissions of what exactly military aid to Ukraine means has been is day by day are, are very scarce. We are uh, suffering from our own uh, incompetence, from our own elites. Russian propaganda is not as bad a problem for us as our own propaganda, since uh, we have not even an idea of what exactly is happening in the names of the various NATO allies, but of course, primarily the Americans. People say that this is a NATO war, but in fact, it's an American war. Other countries aren't really involved. The British to some extent, though they are no longer in the EU, but the EU is run by Germany, and Germany is not contributing to this war, either politically or militarily. After all, Germany has no military to contribute, and nor does it contribute anything economically. So far as I can tell, after the lion's share, which is paid by Americans, uh, countries like Poland are paying for the Ukrainian war, not Germany. And that is by far the most important economy on the continent. Aside from the multipolar world, the NATO alliance itself is much more fractured than it seems to be. We need to have some kind of resolution of these matters in a reasonable way. And hopefully the election of Georgia Meloni will contribute some reasonableness. Hopefully the, it will lead the EU to understand that there are limits to these kinds of conflicts because they will have to be paid for by all of the various peoples of the EU. And they are not happy. Indeed, they are in recession. 
It's a shocking thing to notice since various American officials have threatened to destroy Putin, to destroy the ruble, to destroy Russia, maybe all those 140 million people. But uh, look at the results. Uh, Look at the results from February to October. We have had governments collapse twice in England. In America, the Democrat Party is about to be wiped out electorally. And the Italian government, of course, what we're talking about, Mario Draghi has resigned and now the right, Giorgia Meloni, is in power. And other changes elsewhere show that quite a number of governments have collapsed and some are shaken, but uh, Putin's grasp on the Kremlin and on Russia seems to be as strong as ever, however much the country suffers and however it has suffered setbacks in its invasion of Ukraine as well. This is a much tougher problem than we have been led to believe. This is as tough a problem as any intelligent person would have said a year ago. War with Russia in Eastern Europe is no small undertaking, and it is not clear how much suffering will come to nation after nation, economy after economy, with all the implications that follow from that, since after all, primarily in the West, we have an economic superiority and American military superiority. And since America is not going to go to war on the ground, in the Ukraine, really, we have to count on our control of global capitalism. And this is has frayed and we are losing it since we have turned capitalism itself from a global order into a weapon of war. A new iron curtain has descended in the world, but it was imposed by the American elite, by the European elite on Russia. And many world powers have decided that they will not be part of this iron curtain. So we are in a very unusual spot of trouble. This will, of course, be very great trouble for Italy as well, for reasons of energy, for reasons of electricity, for reasons of EU relations, and everything that follows from that uh, politically as well as economically. So in in this respect, Giorgia Meloni will be tested in that aspect of politics, which is least her strength, diplomacy. She has an experience of organization politically in Italy, an experience of government, of coalitions. She brings a lot more than might people might immediately realize she's not exactly new to politics but diplomacy is another matter and this would be another great test for her as you say italy must look first of all to figure out its situation in the mediterranean and that means dealing with the the problem of endless immigration through north africa this is another catastrophic consequence of the wars of nato afghanistan iraq libya various involvements in syria which we don't call a war but they, in some sense they were a war. And uh, this has led to so many millions of, aside from people who are dead or their lives ruined, also for European purposes, uh, illegal immigrants. That's not the same thing as war refugees. And it's, however, not something that any Italian government has dealt with well before. Now, for the first time, this must be done. It is a great problem, however. One of the reasons these English governments keep collapsing is they can't stop illegal immigrants. And if they can't stop them in England, which is the most removed, you could say, country from the problem, it will be much harder to stop it in Italy, which is on the front lines of this problem. Vast part of the immigration that comes into Europe illegally comes through Italy, through Lampedusa. And the new government will have to face European wrath if they stop the immigrants or they will have to face the wrath of the Italian people if they don't. What is your thought on this immigration issue, on this an immigration invasion? Well, there's a big difference, I think, between migration and immigration. And people tend to confuse the two. We're Christians. Our whole Mediterranean, Rome, you know, Greek, Roman, Judaic background and culture comes from welcoming those in need and, and, and our neighbors, you know, it's in our DNA. What we can't stand and we what, what we can't afford, I mean, if we're rich, sure, let anyone come in, we'll help you. But if a poor part of the world wants to come to a part of the world that seems richer, and it is, but just slightly so, we can't handle this. Not so fast. We need to do what Germany is basically doing because they take the best migrants, quote-unquote. Such a sad uh, and horrible definition, but the Germans are playing a very weird game where they take all the migrants that that come from certain parts of the world that have degrees and can do certain type of jobs while they leave everyone else, every other migrant, either to Greece or Italy or, you know, Malta. So this is a big problem. We want to welcome and everyone but we sometimes we've got trouble even feeding our, our own people and of course these poor migrants they're forced to do illegal jobs i mean what else can they do they you know they've got families and they, they need to eat so i'm not blaming the migrants i'm blaming the european union which is as absent as always now how about which is something that cardinal sarah said very wise he's a roman catholic cardinal from africa and he was talking as an african and said listen don't confuse things the first and foremost right is not welcoming people is allowing people 
people to stay in their own country. Because believe me, these poor Africans, they're not happy to come in a foreign country they don't know, they speak the language of, and their country is beautiful. But we feel so superior. This is actually a very subtle form of racism, especially by the left. Oh, we should welcome everyone in our nation. So what they're implying is we are endemic better. It's just better. No, trust me, the sons and daughters of Africa or Northern Africa, they want to stay in their homes, but they're forced to move because it's a war of the poorest against the poor. And once the poorest and the poor are at war, you usually leave the wealthy, you know, on their own and they can do whatever they want until we're distracted. So what can we do? Well, first of all, we should, I don't want to sound like I've got the solution to this gigantic problem, but common sense would dictate quota. We're 25 nations in Europe Twenty after Brexit, 26, whatever. Let's have our fair share. Because if you don't do fair share, look what happened to Sweden. You know, it's counterproductive because then they complain, oh, the right wing wins everywhere. Yes, because the leftist policies created such chaos. Uh, Sweden was, we used to be the safest country on earth. Now it's very unsafe in certain parts. Of course, the right wing wins. And, you know, I might be pleased about that. But, you know, Europe needs to use quota. And Germany has to, to pay their share. And Poland, because Poland used to be the arch enemy when they rightfully said no to wild immigration. Because here's another big difference. We just don't want wild immigration. We are super welcoming people, just legal. So Poland was the worst with Hungary. But now that Poland is welcoming all the Ukrainian migrants, because they're now crucial to that war, now they're heroes. And magically, the, sh the sanctions have lifted to Poland. What Again, double standard. Hungary, which is, you know, always being coherent with what they say to say, guys, this is not how things should be done. If the price to pay is leaving the EU, we will. Now, if the European Union doesn't get this right, Giorgia Meloni has, has an incredible weapon. She's so strong right now that she can legitimately threaten the European Union, von der Leyen, I call her von der Leyen because not a true word comes out of her mouth. Listen, if you don't help us, we're just going to leave. That's what Italy basically wants. And we are not Greece, mind you. I mean, I love the Greece to bits. But economically, they're not Italy. That's what I'm trying to say. If we leave, that's it. The European Union is gone. Von der Leyen knows this. So they can't bluff too much anymore. The latest scandal with her lying about the Pfizer thing, she lost the WhatsApp message. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just emblematic of the European Union. But this is a whole other story. Migration needs to be solved in a humane way, in a smart way. Giorgio Meloni is proposing, let's build European Union hotspots in Africa and help them in their own territory and stop the migrants there. Because who's really ruling migration policies is uh, scafisti, illegal handlers, basically. You know, these people that are getting a lot of money to bring migrants, desperate people over to Europe. Now, it's sad also to notice this is not conspiracy. It's in many reports of the European Union. There are certain ONGs, non-governative organization, that uh, save migrants in international waters and bring them to Europe. And these boats are financed by some very nefarious people. This is no secret. It, it's all out there. So also we need to stop that. If a Dutch migrant saving boat is in European waters... Holland takes responsibility, or if a French one, France will. But we can't have this jungle anymore because it's just not doable anymore. And people are upset. And that's how the right-wing parties win. And, you know, there's another weird thing that is happening. It's The left used to be very good at taking care of the workers and the people. They were always in this, you know, in, in, in the poorer era of the cities and of the country. Right now, it's the other way around. I see it with my own eyes. You never see anyone from the left. They're usually in central Rome between the Colosseum and Trastevere, absolutely detached for the needs of the common man. While I don't know if it's sincere, but many leaders of the so-called right, they're always amongst the people. And it's not a coincidence that Giorgio Meloni comes from a very common Roman people's place. It's a very simple place with true Romans. And she's got that common sense of, you know, it's funny, people are cheering at her because she refuses to take the car to just go shopping now that she's prime minister. So she was seen walking with the bodyguards and everything in Rome. And people were cheering, thank you, Georgia. Imagine what a powerful symbol it is. Just a normal woman doing her groceries amongst her people. The last person that did this was Sandro Pertini, a socialist. He was our president of the Republic. And he famously said, I don't need bodyguards. The, the people are my bodyguards. And everywhere he walked along with no security, 
people were just cheering him because you can't really lie to the soul. And people can feel in their souls with all her character, you know, flaws maybe like every other human being. But Georgia Maloney's at least she's sincere and genuine. It, it's yeah. hilarious to see her talk in Parliament because she comes out with very Romanesque allocutions. And uh, this is this is what's changing. I mean, it's two weeks into the government. So ask me again in a month and I'll be like, oh my God, what is happening? The worst fear are coming true and there really are fascists. But you know who, weirdly enough, defended Giorgio Meloni in this government? The, the arch-prophet of the left, which is a philosopher called Massimo Cacciari, known for his vehement arguments, and he always gets very verbal. And he just blasted in a very popular show, Otto Mezzo in Italy, the most popular talk show we have at 8.30, watched by millions of Italians. And he just said, that's enough. I'm so sick and tired of this fear that the fascists are coming out. That's not going to happen. We live in sophisticated democracies. Enough. Let these people do their job and let's judge them afterwards, not beforehand. Because every time in the past 40 years that we had the savior of the country, the best, the bankers, and they were all hailed by the press, they did disastrously. So let's just wait. Let's see them at work. Let's give them a few months and let's see what they do. Now, as I said before, I'm almost upset that she won in such circumstances, Giorgio Meloni, because with migration, energy, a war, possibly a new wave of the pandemic, who knows? All these things on her plate. I mean, how could anyone handle this? And she has to fight with the colonels. She, every general, Napoleon famously said, needs to fight the battles and win them with the colonels at hand. Now, unfortunately, while I may trust at least gut instinct Giorgio Meloni, her entourage, oh my God, I mean, not so sure. Silvio Berlusconi being the first of them, he's he's still got very important issues at hand he needs to solve, legal issues. So he needs the right man in the Justice Department. And Giorgia Meloni, to her credit, stood her ground, said, no, we're not going to put the man you want at the Ministry of Justice. And Matteo Salvini needs to cash in on an incredible loss, but he somehow managed to pass as a victory. Here's another a peculiarity of Italian general elections, no one loses. Everyone wins for some alchemical reason. Matteo Salvini, who went from 26%, I think was his peak. No, there's one more, sorry, 40. He's now down to, you know, two digits, barely two digits points. So he needs to do something. And what he's probably doing is sabotaging a bit this government and passing his own ideas, uh, George Minotti's ideas as his. Now, he was given a ministry, but it's insignificant. I mean, it's very significant, but not what he really wanted. He wanted uh, internal affairs, but, you know, damage has to be contained. And then we've got another enigma, which is the so-called third pole, il terzo polo, which is this weird hybrid of uh, Matteo Renzi and Carlo Calenda, officially on the left, but they're more right-wing than anyone I've ever seen. And they're created this third pole now of potential balance shift. They could really make the difference, especially if Giorgia Menoni needs to give up Berlusconi in Forza Italia, she will need to take them in. Now, Matteo Renzi is famous for being duplicitous and cunning. So, you know, before you ask me about presidentialism, yes, it's in the cards. Yes, it, it would be really good for Italy. But I'm the first one to admit Italian people, I would be afraid because unless we've got an extremely well done system of check and balances like America has, and even there now it's complicated, or France, which is a semi-presidentialism, but I'm a bit afraid of Italian-made presidentialism because it's just going to mean, oh my God, there's no check and balances whatsoever. But it would be really good. It would be really good. And we need stability. The problem is our constitution was written by people, my great-grandfather included, that we're afraid after 20 years of fascism that one party wins too much or has too much power. So what they did was to create a system where there's no real right-wing dictatorship, there's no left-wing dictatorship possible. There's a big center dictatorship possible forever. No one really wins, no one really loses, and we'll have to sort things out, which was a smart move back then because they were so afraid but it gives us incredible instability. Now, there's a big myth that for 70 years, well, for 50 years with the First Republic, the Christian democracy and the five parties system, as it was called, there were 60 governments in 65 years. It's a bit of a lie. Yes, it is technically true. What is not said is, it was the same government. They just changed the prime minister. But it, there was full continuity. That's how we went 
to become the fourth or fifth power in, in, in the world back in the 80s and nine, until the 90s. What we have now is all of the instability with none of the background stability. Yes, exactly. Can- the class of politicians that made the first republic what it was collapsed in the 90s and ever since. There have not been such political men. There have not been such political alliances between remarkably talented, but also dedicated public servants and politicians who, for better and for worse, kept their coalitions going and brought Italy out of a catastrophe in '45 to a remarkable prosperity. And of course, as is inevitable with prosperity, a certain indolence, a certain arrogance, uh, new expectations, and sometimes simply forgetting how difficult it is to keep a government going, how difficult it is to pass a party onto the next generation with some continuity, with a minimum of respect for the tradition that keeps it going as an organization. That's how we end up in this new situation where on the one hand we have populist parties and on the other hand we have uh, elites, insiders that are much less accountable than the politicians of the First Republic were and on the other hand much less successful. It might be that that constitution of the 40s has run its course and that the political forces today cannot function in those terms and would need to figure out a new arrangement for Italy that reflects national character better and not simply the extremes of fear of violence from the left or the tyranny of the right, etc., etc. These things are not forces of any importance now. Something more typically Italian and perhaps something that better brings out talent to into office would be necessary for the country to become governable again. And it might be fairly urgent since populism is a sign that the people are disgusted with the elites, but it is not a solution. The yeah, arrival of the right and the of nationalism needs a constitutional form that respects Italian traditions and conception of justice, therefore that everybody can live with and want to pass on to their children. Without that, populism isn't a good thing and it doesn't even offer stability. So as, as other regimes, Italy is facing this uh, oligarchy that's every bit as, as much as possible integrated with the oligarchies in other places in the EU. And obviously the people are very angry about this, but largely impotent. It's perhaps that is ultimately the challenge for Giorgia Meloni. Can she make a democracy representation, voting and parties seem effective? Can she keep a coalition going with the various changes necessary for a prime minister to stay in office while implementing whatever reforms will give her the best chance to get to constitutional reform and a national agreement so that the constitutional reform would be legitimate. These are terrible difficulties. And as you say, already the urgent economic and immigrant crisis is more than any politician has managed to handle for a long time. But this is what she signed up for, running for office. We will see now how these things turn out. It's what makes politics interesting, after all. Do... Let's share again in a few months. And we'll, um, I exactly. Have... We will have to see. We'll have to do another conversation when we can talk about the character of the government, not merely of the circumstances in which it has been formed as we have today. We will see more of Italy then. But I, I think uh, this this is has been very instructive for our audience about Italian politics and about the political problems that are facing Europe more broadly in all their, not to say ugliness, but certainly the difficulties and the turmoil. America has problems that come from the, its massive size, power, wealth, and in a way, unity. Europe has problems that tend to come from disunity, and this requires a different kind of management. A success in Italy would be a very great sign about how... Yeah. Europe might manage its disunity more productively. It is ultimately the European destiny to find strength in disunity. At its peak before the world wars, the the tiny continent of Europe managed to boast some five or six world empires and some smaller empires. This is a a world-bestriding continent in that sense. Now, all of that has vanished, but it's not to say that the character of the European community, such as it is, of Christendom, such as it was, has changed. This unity is still of the essence of our political genius. What Europe is now, a kind of bureaucratic economic empire of the Germans, is not functioning well. What Europe might be to function well, well, it would have to be more disunited in the right way. It would have to be cognizant of the things that have to be dealt with together and much more respectful of all the things that have to be separated if the various communities are to be even able to act rather than paralyzed by 
bureaucracies by uh, untouchable and out-of-touch elites. Yeah. So with this situation, uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for giving us insight into Italian politics, into Italian character, into troubles that, of course, America will have to learn about in order to deal with the European alliance well. Europe is an ally that America needs, but needs to manage well. Uh, Americans are turning much more to American concerns because they are so urgent and so important, but it cannot completely lose touch with Europe. Something that is less arrogant and bureaucratic than NATO or the EU is necessary. A new understanding between America and Europe in the context of this new multipolar world. And that means, first of all, learning the, the major nations of Europe, what their character is, what their historical needs are. And you have been an invaluable resource. I always like talking politics with you. And so I'm very happy to introduce you to the audience also in this capacity, not merely as a, an intellectual and film lover, a cinephile, but also as an observer of politics and a, a man of affairs. So thank you very much. Uh, we have to close our long podcast now, but we must do it again once events summon our attention. All the best, My meanwhile. My absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. And let's go. Let's chat again soon. Thank you to your listeners. We need America more than ever. We just need them as friends and allies. Thank All you. Bye bye. Presto, ciao.